here? Are you here? Okay, okay, we'll define here. And we're talking about here, the Paul Leslie Hour, where the music comes alive and you meet the most fascinating people who create it. In our radio interview with Jerry Jamat is featured on this very episode. Jerry Jamat. Now, if he had been born in mm, France, he would be Gerard Jamot. So his name is Jerry Jamat. He's been called one of the most influential bass players in the past 100 years. This originally aired back in October 2007, eons ago. You will not only be enamored by hearing Jerry's music with solar energy, but the interview you're going to see is very interesting, very exciting. From Jerry Jamat's beginnings with the late great King Curtis to his recording sessions with everyone from B.B. King, Ray Charles, Jerry Jeff Walker, Roberta Flack, Aretha Franklin, Freddie King, and too, too, too many more to mention his work. This is a man who has music in his soul. He has created a lot of music that means a lot to a lot of people, and he's been heard on recordings of artists from all over the world. Wherever it is that you are in the world, you can be a helper and supporter. Help independent media and the spoken word. Go to thepaulleslie.com support. Give to yourself and to others the gift of stories. Now let's listen to that interview with Gerard Jemot or Jerry Jemot. What do you say? It is a real pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you so much for making the time to give us this interview. Well, thank you for the opportunity. To start kind of from the beginning, you grew up in the Bronx, correct? That's correct. Not Macon, Georgia. <laughs> a lot of people think I'm from Macon, Georgia because of what King, by the way, King Curtis announced me at the Fillmore. And it's kind of stuck. But no, I was born in the Bronx. And ironically, I just moved to the Deep South, which is I mean, Jackson, Mississippi now. In the Jackson, Mississippi area, I should say. Small town called Raymond. And when you were growing up in New York, what types of music did you listen to? Whatever was played on the radio. My mother listens to classical music all the time. My aunts and uncles listened to rhythm and blues and jazz. So on my visits to their house, I would get a taste of Earl Father Hines, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, and other local of Charles Brown, Nat King Cole. But at home, I'd be listening to Tchaikovsky and Beethoven and Brahms and Mozart. That was my musical experience coming up. And you started out with your own playing on the acoustic bass. Yes, that was inspired by me hearing a record of my sister. I have an older sister, four years older than me, and she listened to more stuff. And she was bringing home jazz and folk music. She had an electric combination between she'd bring home Pete Seeger records. What's the three people met? Peter, Paul, and Mary. Oh, you Paul and Mary, right. <laughs> and Miles Davis. So when the Miles Davis caught my ear, I heard him playing a tune called I Was a Bell, and Paul Chambers was playing the bass, and that caught my ear. And I said, that's what I want to do. But I should say, before I played music, I was a tap dancer. 
So that's where I probably got a lot of my rhythmic sensibility from just, you know, being a dancer first, but then going into music. Five-year gap between the two, but it still remains with me today. How did you start music on a professional level? I was started playing when I was 11, actually. And then at the age of 12, in the fall of 1958, I was approached by some musicians who heard me rehearsing with some kids at the boys' club. And they asked me about, you know, to join their band. I said, it's fine with me, but you have to ask my mother. So <laughs> they took me home and asked my mother. They were very, you know, they were older. And they were in their 40s and 50s. I was 12 years old. She said, make sure, you know, you bring them home, you know, safely and look out for them, which they did. And that was the beginning of my um, professional career. Uh, at that point, I was working with a group called Smiling Henry and the Rhythm Makers. And we played dances, bars any kind of social events that would take place when somebody wanted to hire up. It was basically like almost like you would consider today a society band, basically, or a wedding band. So we played all styles of music for all different clientele. And we did some club dates in bars and some of the other musicians in the band would recommend me to play in other bands besides that band. So I found myself working from three to four nights a week, playing in different bands most of the time. You had mentioned earlier the legendary King Curtis. Tell us about meeting him. Now, he changed my life. I was playing at a small paradise, a local club in New York City, which is now defunct. And he played there also. A lot of the bands came. It was part of the Chitlin circuit. At the time, Chuck Rennie was in his band, and he was leaving the band, and he recommended me for the job. This is in 1967. First, I didn't want to take the job, but I eventually did. I'm glad I did. It worked out very well. I was I didn't know anything about the record business at all, and he had promised me studio work to get me to join the band, because I was reluctant, because I was coming up, I came up listening to John Coltrane, Hank Jones, all the famous jazz stars, Cannonball Adderley, what's the other tenor player, Dying Lock, George Davis, Eddie Griffin, these are my, like, Ben Webster, these are my heroes, and so I wasn't that familiar with King Curtis, and so I wasn't, I was kind of reluctant at first. But once I played with him, that was it. It was magic. It was total magic. He taught me so much about, you know, performing and playing and being a performer as opposed to just a musician. So he actually changed my life. But I left the band after a couple of months because he didn't hire, he didn't use me on a record session. He had promised me recording work. A couple of months later, he called me, but he said, we resolved our differences. He said, just, you don't have to play in the band. You don't have to travel with me, but you can, you know, just make my records. So that began a four-year relationship until the day he passed away, when he was killed in 1971. So he introduced me to Atlantic Records, and I started working with Atlantic Record artists, starting with Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, The Rascals, and Harley Simon, Jerry Jeff Walker, a lot of artists. Well, I don't even Lorraine. Let me see. There's so many of them that a lot of times we recorded and didn't know who the artist was. So I find myself, my name appearing on records, which I didn't know I was on until they were released and who the artist would be. And this is how it was done back in those days. That would happen quite often. You wouldn't know who you were playing behind. You, you create a track and then they put a vocal on top of it. Then you'd hear it on the radio and say, oh, wow, I, that's my record I was on. I ain't even but an artist. And that's how the business was back in those days. Out of all these sessions... Is there any in particular that's a favorite of yours that you feel especially honored to have played on? That would be the case with the work I did with Fad Jones and the Mel Lewis Orchestra. Back in those days, they would hire musicians, the greatest jazz musicians in the world would be making records. 
the one being Herb Lavelle. He was a great drummer, and he was there at the beginning. Best musicians from the Count Basie's band, Duke Ellington's band, Maynard Ferguson's band, King Curtis's band. We had members from the um, Philharmonic, from the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, Rex Powell's from the CBS Orchestra. That day, the radio stations had their own orchestras. So all the, the cream of the creme of, of all the musicians played. And Thad Jones, a great jazz musician, he was in one of those in our sessions. So I met him, and what he decided to do, he called me to play bass on it. That was really honored for me because coming from that school of music and to be selected, I was really thrilled and honored to be part of that. The album was called Life. But that was one of the sessions that really stood out in my mind. Besides the, I guess, the normal stuff I did, like with Aretha Franklin, Ken Curtis, Oh, one thing about the Aretha Franklin stuff, when I was first called down to um, work with her, the band from Muscle Shoals was there. Roger Hawkins, Tommy Cogbill, Jimmy Johnson, Spooner Odom. I watched them struggle over one song They in the morning at 10 o'clock. I heard it immediately where I thought it should be, but they were messing around trying to make it riffs and blues. And I said, this is a country song. <laughs> After a while, Jerry Wexler, the producer, said, Jerry, go in there and see what you can do. Two weeks later, two, I should say two takes later, <laughs> the record was, re, was refinished and was called Sync. So that was a very memorable session that stands out. And the stuff with B.B. King I did was kind of obviously because we came and they wanted something different. They called me to create a new groove and that's what was expected of me. So I just did what I had been known for doing. But I was very, I was honored to be able to help and support a musician that was so great and had done so much for music and to take his music to another level, which it did because after we recorded the first session of Why I Sing the Blues, we went on to record The Thrill is Gone. And that just made people more aware of him in the popular market. He went from working the same 325 days a week, but he was making a lot more money doing those 325 days of a year for traveling which he still does. He's cut back now. I, I see him about every couple of years I go visit him. He's still working hard. I was reading that Jacko Pistorius cited you as one of his major influences. I was wondering who you think are the great bassists. I hate to leave anybody out. See, what, what happened to me, the people I ended up, I would listen to as a kid coming up after discovering jazz at the age of 10, and all the musicians that I would listen to subsequently then Horace Silver, Cannibal Adderley, Les McCann, Count Basie. I ended up working with all those musicians in the studio once <laughs> I got there. So great bassists like George Zivier, Nils Hinton, Ron Carter, Richard Davis. I actually got a chance to work with these people and, you know, meet them and have, you know, comradeship with them. So they they were influenced before and after. Modern day bassists, you have, of course, Charles Mingus. Paul and Charles Mingus are ones that really influenced my play more so than anybody else. Then came Richard Davis and Ron Carter and Sam Jones, Doug Watkins, Jimmy Lewis, Aaron Bell. Um, I love Jocko's playing. He's been an influence of me. I, he says I influenced him, but he's influenced me also. He's influenced everybody. You have cats like Victor Wooten, who are great. Clyde Bullard, people don't know about him. There's so many musicians out there. Everybody doesn't get the exposure. I'm influenced by music more so, not just the bass, but basically musicians. A lot of singers influence me, like Ray Charles, Billy Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Dinah Washington. Singers, piano players. I can go on and on. <laughs> on every instrument, you know, the drummers, Philly Joe Jones, Art Taylor, Herb Lavelle. 
what happens when you're playing with musicians, we come together from different backgrounds, different experiences, and we blend out talents. At any given moment, the greatness comes out. It's not about what you did before. It's about what you can do right now. If you've done your homework and put time into your instrument and music, you're going to come up with a pretty good product. And it has to be done like in the studio within three hours, basically, <laughs> maybe an hour over time. So we're here recording, you know, four or five songs within that time that we've never heard or seen before. So it was a wonderful experience just to um, be able to take part in that. I was hoping you could tell us about your record, Solar Energy. I was wondering how some of these songs came to be. It's funny. I had a vision back in 1975. The vision was to be successful anymore in my career, which at that point was like in a point where it was very waning after, after a very bad car accident in 72. I had a vision that said I had to write a book, play in a white rock band, and take somebody with me. I forget the order exactly, but those three things stood out in my mind. I had to do these things. So I always bring people with me when I do a project. I travel with a team of people. I have my, like they said, my network. I don't do anything by myself anymore. So I wrote the book. I've written several books. And I joined the white rock band. <laughs> several. And things are culminating now at this point with Greg Allman and Friends, which is the most, one of the most high-profile bands I've ever been with. So everything is moving along as um, success is, um, continues to come my way. Well, you just mentioned Greg Allman and Friends, so I was wondering if you could tell us about how you met Greg and how you began playing with Greg Allman and Friends. Well, I met him through a friend, Jack Devaney, who saw my name on a poster working with a white rock fan. So he proceeded to hunt me down, not on that gig, but he found out where the band was working and came to another gig. And that's how we met. And he's a friend of O'Teal Burbridge, who's, who's Greg of the Allman Brothers bassist and Derek Brooks. And so I got in, I met the whole Allman Brothers camp through Jack. And after that, the next year I came down after Jack threw a surprise birthday party for me. Part of that birthday week with myself and Melvin Sparks, we went to see the Grey Boy All-Stars. We went to see Lou Donaldson. And we also went to see the Allman Brothers. And when we went to see the Allman Brothers, I took everybody with me. I took... Purdy, Bernard Purdy, who came to the party, and Cornel Dupree, who Jack flew up from Texas, who was originally the Kingpins, back from the great Fillmore um, West recordings we had done. And we sat in and played Memphis Soul School with the Allman Brothers. Two weeks later, I got a call from Greg asking me to join his band. So, so that's how I got the job. But ironically, his brother, Dwayne, and we used to work a lot together. Before the Allman Brothers was formed, they had a few other bands, but they weren't working out. And the last time I saw Dwayne, we went to Atlanta at the airport. And I said, Dwayne, what's going on? What's happening? What's up with you? He said, well, I'm going to go home and start a band with my brother. I said, cool. I said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to stop doing these record dates and just do jingles. You know, so they stop picking my brain. I'm writing these songs I'm not getting credit for. So we both made career decisions to split from the music business in a sense. And the next thing I knew, the Almond Brothers blew up. And I got I was successful just doing jingles. So that's how I that's how I met Greg. But to get Greg to come from California to Georgia to start the band, he told him that I was gonna be in the band. <laughs> <laughs> but then when Greg got here, yeah, he said, Well, he's too busy and blah blah blah, he's making too much money. So he kinda stuck at his brother to come in. <laughs> so I Greg 
Greg told me the story. <laughs> Dwayne told me. When I joined the band, we were on the bus. Greg told me the story of how his brother got him to come based upon the fact that I was going to be in the band. What do you think about Greg Ullman? Great person, great human being, great singer, great musician. He has such a feel for music and, and, and interpretation, especially his ballads. You know, there's an art to every style of music, and he learned the art well. Floyd Miles taught him, you know, how to sing the blues and rhythm and blues, and he has taken it to develop his own style with it. Really a pleasure and an honor to work with him. And he's so humble. You know, <laughs> he's one of the most humble people you ever want to meet. He doesn't, he's a reluctant star, but he is a star, and he does, he handles it well. He gives the fans time, you know, people time. He's, he's good, he's good people. From Solar Energy, is there any particular song that is a favorite of yours? I like a lot of the solo stuff I did. My wife loves Row, Row, Row Your Boat, by the way. That's her favorite. That's neat. I was listening to that. Thank you. That's her favorite. And every, I like the stuff. I like the disco sex that I did, the hot spot. City Blues has been an all-time favorite of mine. I played that all over the world with different bands. And always like That would be the closing number. Make it happen was my is my theme song basically. The music in you. I'm look I'm looking at the back of the CD now, and I'm, there's so much stuff here that I've done that I enjoy. That's why I put this CD out as a compilation. This is the best thing that I've done. And some of the work that's on the CD, I license like the stuff I did with Tucker Smallwood and Arlen Roth, which is a, a Robert Johnson project. Was called Incarnation. That was mind blowing. I never I never heard Robert Johnson's music before. They told me the history before we started at the session. You know, everything, when you're recording, you don't know nothing until you get there. So they gave me a little bit of the history, and they would play these old acetate recordings, and we go in and try to, like, mimic them as if it was, like, as if he was here, and just trying to, like, create the feeling of Robert Johnson, but this was back in 1983. And that's some of my best work. In fact, it made me go home and pull up, pull out my upright bass, because I said, well, I can't play electric on this bass. I mean, it's like... It ain't happening. We got to go with the upright to get the feeling. You know, on certain songs, I just needed that certain feeling that I couldn't get out of the electric bass. So I had to force to get a, an upright bass to um, play it for the first time in many years. And I said, listen, I can only do one take. So I don't have the endurance to play this bass twice. <laughs> so that was really a nice experience also. But I like everything on the CD, songs from the Bronx, something, oh, Soul, Happy Soul. And I was done with Sam Jacobs, who was known for doing a lot of, one of the grandfathers of rap. He produced that, actually. So everything on there was good. It's a matter of um, everybody won't like everything on there, which is natural. But I'm sure there's something there for everybody. Tell us about your books. A book that I got in the vision. I wrote the book with the help of Dr. Dan, who was the white rock band I was playing with. He was also an English professor. So he helped me with a lot of, you know, ins and outs of getting it started. The book basically is about musicianship for the average person. It was written with the mind of making music accessible to the housewife, the electrician, the doctor, the construction worker. No matter what, I was just labeled the playing field and took the mystique out of music, starting with the basics, using a verbal learning system, which I have been using now for the last so going on 24 years. It works. I can give a person one lesson and they're straight for life, basically. I've turned people's lives around using the system because it gives a, a level of understanding to music that is not that normally taught in school. And I have a lot, a lot of my students come from who, you know, have degrees 
and they just didn't get it in school. Same birthday, they didn't give it to them. They gave them a lot of stuff, but they just couldn't apply it. So my system, which is incorporated in the books and all my books, makes music applicable so you can apply what you have learned previously or look at what you have learned through different different lights. And you can see it a lot of places a lot clearer so that you're able to interpret your own music with authority and confidence and not think you're just copying people. You know, you're actually creating your own music, which is what solar energy is all about. <laughs> Everybody has solar energy. Music from the soul. When someone goes out and sees you perform or listens to your music, what is it that you hope that they get out of the experience? A connection. If it's even the words in the song, the music, the combination, if it's instrumental, I'm trying to protect and project a feeling. You know, music is about recreating an event. It could be something you smell. You can write a song based upon the smell, the feeling of that smell. And that's the memories that that smell, that aroma would bring back to your life. I mean, you can hear a song and you can all of a sudden you go back for 30 years and know what you were wearing and what you were eating on that day the first time you heard that song. So in my writing, I try to make my music memorable, and I hope that it evokes an event in someone's life to connect and say, hey, this feels good, this makes you feel a certain way, it could be good, I like to work listening to this, I like to romance listening to this, you know, music is always made for a purpose. Some music is made to dance for, like, like disco sex in the hot spot. These are dance songs. Music and you, you can dance to. But it's going to, you know, what kind of dance you want to do or which mood you're in. So sometimes you just want to listen. But I'm hoping that people, when they listen to my music, they just make a connection and say, hey, this sounds good. I like the message. I like the way it's presented. It feels good. I got a good vibe. So if they ask you a question, I hope they get a good vibration from listening to my music. Is there anything on the horizon with any of your projects? Well, what I'm looking for now is to um, develop an artist and residency program at one of the local universities in my area. Yeah, I have just moved in, and I'm still unpacking and still setting up. And I'm looking at, you know, 2008, 2009 to actually getting something done because I'm busy touring with Greg and other people and with the Soul Survivors also. But I'm looking to do my community workshops, which I do using my learning technique, which is in my book. So there's a potential for me to do that work in the community. Also, my efforts towards making people aware of what's going on in the world through music, through my songs, involved with partnering with other people. Like I have a song to a group called New Orbiter, a group of musicians who are working towards cleaning up the environment. So I'm socially conscious of what needs to be done to repair this world that we're in. How can the listener find out more? Well, you can come to jerrydemont.com. I'm pretty accessible. You can contact me there. It says contact Jerry. The articles I've written, my tour schedule is there. I respond. It's about you know putting people together, partnering up. And given that this broadcast is going out all over the world, what would you like to say to the world? Nam Yoho Renge Kyo is like I like to say to the world, which makes basically is the name of the universe, the Buddhist chant, which I chant. I practice world peace. I wish them all peace in their lives to connect with that solar energy within themselves to see the truth. If we live responsibly and look, think about what's going to happen, like the indigenous people say here, think about the next seven generations, have your actions based upon those, those that fact that's going to affect seven generations down. You know, thinking along those lines and taking action is what I like to tell the world. You know, join a group, you know, get with people, get involved. Get to make sure your voice will be heard collectively. We can't do it by ourselves.
That's what a vision I had. Take somebody with you is always in my mind, always taking somebody with me. Don't do it by myself. Well, Mr. Jumat, I thank you so much for this very interesting interview. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, and I look forward to seeing you when you're here in Atlanta. Well, Paul, the same here. Give me a call. I'll make sure that we get to see you backstage. Well, have a great one, and we'll see you soon. Okay, thank you much. We thank you and appreciate you dropping in for the Paul Leslie Hour today. You know, you can help the Paul Leslie Hour in our mission to provide independent media content like this by visiting www.thepaulleslie.com slash support. We truly thank you. This is your announcer speaking. Performance of the Entertainer intro song and Corina Corina outro song courtesy of John Primerano. Well, that's it for today. So until next time, be safe and be good.